0: It takes courage to speak out. When other people are either not talking about them, not giving them voice, it takes some courage to actually put oneself out there. And when you do that, not only is that transformative for yourself, but it's also transformative for those people who see you do that. And if they see you do that, you know, maybe they're more likely to have the courage to do so themselves.
1: This is In Between Places, a podcast about the dynamic journey of social change from the Center for Transformative Action and Cornell Media Relations. Our mission at In Between Places is to tell the stories of the visionaries at CTA who believe the world is abundant with solutions to the world's stickiest issues. CTA helps people who have ideas for innovative social change through mentorship, workshops, and the nitty-gritty stuff like back office work. It's a safe place for visionaries to test their initiatives and bring them to fruition. It's kind of like an incubator. Anka Wessels is the director of the Center for Transformative Action and teaches at Cornell University. I wanted to start our series with a meaningful conversation with her to lay the groundwork of the philosophy of CTA. She says all the organizations that work with her operate with this larger worldview. They expect that effective change that humanizes everyone involved can happen. It's messy. Conflict comes on the path to peace. But it's done in love and compassion, especially towards people we disagree with. The Center for Transformative Action brings together the theories and practices of our leaders in civil rights. And I started off by asking Anka about the basics. What is transformative action?
0: What is this bigger problem that it's trying to address? It's an alternative paradigm for social action that moves us beyond the typical yet understandable response that we have when we experience or witness injustices. This response is usually an impulse to identify what or who is at fault or to blame and then to go after them aggressively and you know, wanting to tear, tear them down because of the injustices that they're responsible for or are creating. And transformative action offers an alternative to this us versus them strategy because while tearing others down can feel really cathartic, right? It's really not going to be enough if we want to solve today's intractable social and economic problems. In fact, we think it can even be counterproductive because again, solutions that only work for some of us aren't tenable, they're just no longer tenable. So instead with transformative action, we're seeking solutions that work for everyone. How can we create solutions where everyone prospers? And to reach these solutions so that they're really going to work and take hold, requires engaging with and including others, even those with whom we disagree. And I guess I want to uh, pause there for a second just to say that I'm not talking about solutions that are compromises, because compromises generally achieve actually lose-lose solutions instead of win-win solutions. Mm. So instead, we're talking about solutions that transcend and transform our currently dominant norms systems, uh, structures, and ways of thinking. So they reveal brand new possibilities that we couldn't have seen um, through the older, more habitual lenses and ways of acting. And these solutions that we're looking for are solutions where everyone can thrive. Um, So transformative action really promotes the idea that our efforts to defend and expand social and ecological justice are going to be more fruitful when we replace the the me against you or the us against them strategies with strategies that answer the question, what's best for all of us? And then to answer that question really requires having confidence that conflict doesn't need to be a zero-sum game in which one of us wins and the other loses. Uh, It takes a willingness to listen, to listen to and work with others, to find common ground. It takes openness to let go of old habits and norms of how things are or should be, and to imagine these new possibilities that we can't quite yet see. And finally, it takes individual and collective empowerment, right, to work toward these new possibilities uh, together with others. And just hearing this too, it, it seems like
1: it really involves people involved that are sort of visionaries, people who are able to imagine this different possibility that aren't just hearing things on the surface, aren't just hearing the surface level words, but are seeing mm-hmm. what is this fear or hurt that this other person is sort of trying to get at, you know, that I think I have a conflict with, but. What are they really concerned about and how can we together address that?
0: Right, exactly. Yeah, I think at its core, transformative action is about dismantling the idea that some people hold as truth, um, that we're all acculturated to and, and often raised with that um that there's this epic zero sum game where Naturally, some people are going to win, and some people are going to lose, and that we're all in this fierce competition for scarce resources and opportunities, and this is just how it is. Um, and I, this very, so that idea is keeping us, I think, from finding these more innovative solutions and a sense of possibility that we can really solve problems that we're facing as a collective, all together, in a way that everybody can thrive that it doesn't require having some people left out or dismissed oftentimes people will consider that as well that's just normal of course some people are going to lose and some people aren't and so i think for us transformative action is really about questioning that so why is that normal it's it's a logic that it's a logic that's pervasive in our economic system, right? This, this logic of scarce resources and competition—it seems to be the foundation upon which our economic system is built. But it also fuels the ideologies of racism and sexism and other kinds of isms, because there's this sense of scarcity and a lack of of resources, and so. We are in competition with a variety of others at all times. And that, in in my opinion, is a contradiction to the promise of what a democracy is, where democracy is meant to be a system where everybody can thrive. So transformative action is, as a result, is really grounded in a belief and an understanding of our common humanity and human dignity, and that this is what defines and unites us all. So... When we center ourselves in that in our common humanity and human dignity, we can unlock the possibility of solidarity right that that places at the center of belief that we're all better off if we're all better off. so this is where transformative action, I think is grounded at the place its starting point, and then it's replacing this us versus them sort of scarcity mentality with an abundance mindset and that we actually can all thrive by creating a society that works for everyone. And I think at this point, given the existential threats that we're facing in society and in the world, we actually have to create a society where everyone can thrive and It's from that positioning of abundance that we can then listen to other people, not as others or people that we should be afraid of or people that we should are competing against, but really people who are like us that we can, even as we disagree, find some common ground to build that those relationships and that trust and that vulnerability that allows us to then together use our collective creativity and imagination to find those solutions that, you know, really do work for all of us. And that's where the the notion that there are these possibilities that we haven't yet been able to see, but they come from this process of all of us coming together and exploring possibilities and understanding each other's needs And understanding each other's perspectives, listening, at the very least, listening to one another and seeing each other's humanity, allows for this uh, transformation to take place. And that's why we call it transformative action.
1: So much of what we've seen in the United States in the past few years, surely with the the pandemic, with just this um, division, this sharp division that we've seen, if any of that has wavered your faith in transformative action, but it almost sounds like from how you've talked about it, that it's almost convinced you that, yeah,
0: this is what we need. (laughs) This is, this is (laughs) what we
1: need. Jeez.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, certainly I feel a a lot of, frustration and and anger often, right? And so I struggle, I think, like everybody else with wanting to stay present to what's going on and informing myself about what's going on and also feeling disgusted and discouraged and wanting to hide at the same time. So I, I sort of waver between wanting to ignore it and wanting to rail against it. It can be a struggle, but I think for me, this notion that i've just described allows me to to focus, right? To to recognize that ignoring it and running away or railing against it, neither one of those are very effective and if i want to be a positive force in my community and in my own life, i can center myself by first learning more about what's going on, listening to people who have different perspectives about what's going on, connecting with people and sharing with them, right? And then through that process, working with them in small sort of in-between ways of, you know, finding solutions, connecting with people in our community, um, lending a hand, Um, and finding those ways to make change here. And that provides, for me, this antidote to what's going on in the larger world. And I I feel like if if all of us are doing those in our small places, some of us have more power, right? Some of us are in places where they can affect large-scale change, and some of us are in places where we can affect smaller change. But Together, I do feel like if we can tap into this notion of abundance where people can really connect to the notion like, yes, we're actually all better off if we're all better off, that I feel is something that we can all understand no matter where we are, where we position ourselves on various issues that that will give us collective security and everybody wants a world where they can thrive and where their children can thrive and where their neighbors are thriving. So I guess, yeah, it does... this philosophy or this way of understanding the world and who I am or who we are in relation to others does help me get grounded in my own life, like waking up every morning and doing the work I am doing and talking to others. And, you know, I work with a lot of young people and encouraging them that change. Is possible. It, it keeps me grounded and feeling authentic in that communication. Yes, we can make a difference and we can transform systems and there are dark times right now and we see that in so many ways but there's also a lot of light it just doesn't show up on the front page of the newspaper all the time right but there's a lot going on um, where people are making extraordinary changes in their communities so connecting to that and and being able to authentically share that and with with people in my community here and also with the students I work with, it feels like it's putting positive energy into the world, if you will, and that through that, that, that there will be a ripple effect. So yeah, I think even as I can be frustrated and dismayed when I read the paper in the morning, I also feel empowered and connected and also not alone. I think that's one of... The tools that gets used against us is that we are encouraged to distance ourselves from others and see others as enemies. And in that way, we isolate ourselves and we stay isolated into communities of like-minded people. And that is an effective tool for disempowering us. So if we can distinguish that and see that that is what's happening, then the way in which to work against that is to connect and to continue to connect and engage and create relationships. And then from that, that has sort of this upward spiral effect that the more you do that, the more you learn and you listen and you hear different perspectives and you imagine the world, in different ways. And then humans are naturally, it's in our DNA to be creative and to want to solve problems. So, through that collective process, we can again sort of come up and imagine how things could be different. And that is just not only does it give us a sense of intense belonging, but also a sense of possibility and, you know, in creativity and engagement to make a difference and to see that difference and emerge in our own communities is incredibly inspiring and empowering.
1: Well, in transformative action has deep roots in nonviolent communication. And I was wondering if you could describe that for me and how that plays a
0: role in transformative action. Sure. Right. So it's, it's hard, right? Because I think when, when we're talking about problems where there's so much at stake and you know our very lives are at stake, our communities are at stake, that anger holding on to it can feel so important. It can feel so important to hold on to that anger because it feels like the fuel that will allow me to continue to fight these injustices. But in truth, Staying in that anger is debilitating because it doesn't allow us to be effective in any other way except resistance. And while resistance is important, um, if we want to actually get to solutions, we need to move right from that anger to a place where we can be innovative and creative and it's really hard to get there from, from anger. So anger is a good place in terms of resistance and survival. It can be really helpful, but, um, moving towards a, a solution oriented creative space where we're not just destroying, but we're building. Um, we have to grapple with the anger and, 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 Dig into what what's causing it, and once we get there to the sorrow and the pain and the grief, um, then we can move towards the creative um, building of something of something new. Yeah, so I think you know anger has its place. I don't want to say anger is wrong, but having it become a a fixture in our lives is disempowering. Um, as a as a practical matter, if we gain the skills to listen to others, um, people are more likely to listen to our views after having their own anger and pain authentically acknowledged, and we're more likely to hear them if our own anger has lifted. So, if we if if we're in talking to people with whom we disagree over something that where the stakes are high, one of the first things we need to learn how to do is really allow ourselves and others to express the the deep pain and, and grief that underpins their anger. And, you know, once the anger has been, I don't want to say like, maybe dissolved, or like we, we get to the grief and the pain that underpins that anger, then there's an ability to connect, like, oh, I can understand pain, and I can understand grief. The anger is, is scary, right? But the, there's something softer about connecting with someone around pain, and, and it's through that that we can start to develop care. And and it's through the sharing that we start to develop trust. And this trust and caring is essential if we're going to have those conversations around solutions because then we start to care about what other people's perspectives and experiences are. And we start to consider them in the solutions that we're thinking about. There's also a lot of personal and internal reflection that goes on through this process. So we start to even understand ourselves at a much deeper level, and that helps us understand maybe even the reasons why we feel this way. And for many of us, uh, the circumstances that we're in are actually created by forces, larger forces, the the systems um, that we're we're all living in so we can see how these systems are playing out to create certain experiences and outcomes for us and maybe completely different experiences and outcomes for others, but we're all connected because we're all embedded in these larger systems. And what I love about that, I mean, it's part of not just understanding what's going on for me and what's going on for you, but the way in which we're connected because we live in this larger system that is affecting all of us. And that recognition allows us to find solutions that transform those systems so that we're, again, sort of that we're, we're all better off, that none of us are in pain. So... For me, that's nonviolent communication. Learning the skills and practices of listening with empathy, hearing others without having that defensive mechanism, because we're really listening for what that, how that person, like what they're needing, what they're feeling. Because I can understand that also, because I'm a human being and I have similar needs and feelings. Um, that connection that comes from that kind of listening as well as expression can end up resulting in nonviolent organizing, right, the kind of nonviolent organizing that was part of the civil rights movement in the United States, because it's through Seeing each other's humanity and caring for each other because they're also humans just like we are, that we begin to organize to transform the systems that are really oppressing all of us. And that's what the nonviolent organizing is about. And it's what fueled the civil rights movement.
1: This is so much um the backbone of transformative action. I was wondering if we could talk nuts and bolts of um, just the three components that are part of transformative
0: action. Sure, yeah. Right, so transformative action um, is inspired by nonviolent organizing that I just described, and it has these three basic principles or components. The first one is is breaking the silence that surrounds injustices. The second is building an inclusive movement based on empathy and understanding that can bridge differences and transform, maybe even transform our adversaries into allies. And the third is articulating an inspiring and proactive and practical vision for change. So just to break those down a little bit or or unpack those, by breaking the silence around injustice, we're affirming a fundamental premise of a just society that what dehumanizes you also dehumanizes me. So making the choice to speak out about injustice takes courage and it can require a great emotional strength and often also requires the willingness to suffer unpleasant consequences, right? And this action alone can be transformative. Just standing up and speaking out against injustices, that act can be personally transformative and it can transform those who are witnessing it. Um, The second principle focuses on the listening I was talking about, the listening with empathy with uh, the intention to to establish understanding across difference. So when we listen to one another one another to find shared values um, we can work towards finding common objectives and if possible, then these opportunities for mutual benefit. So that's the, the second principle of building an inclusive movement based on empathy and understanding to bridge differences and through that understanding maybe even get to that place where people who were adversaries can become allies. And then the third principle recognizes that what really inspires people are innovative approaches that allow them to see new possibilities, to imagine that things can be different that we can, we can actually all prosper. Um, so when it comes to our really challenging problems that we see today, climate change, um, systemic prejudice, food crises, racial violence, gun violence, persistent poverty, we really need to go beyond the ways those have been addressed in the past, and the kind of thinking that have caused them to arise. So we have to release these old habits of thinking and realize it, realize that they're actually not inevitable or immutable, um, that they can change. And through that, we can unleash our imagination and our creativity um, to come up with solutions. So articulating then An inspiring vision of what we are for that really stays away from blaming and shaming and demonizing others can encourage us all to choose connection over the isolation that I was mentioning before and sense of alienation and really choose joy over despair and anger and solutions instead of being stuck in bitterness so those are the three principles of transformative action, and and when we can imagine this positive future, then we can bring it into the present um, because we can see it. We can bring it into the present. We can live it moment by moment, step by step, moving towards this world that we're we're wishing to create. If you could put some flesh on those
1: bones of describing um, where these principles, these practices have been lived out in one of CTA's projects and how they're really enacting these.
0: Yeah, I'd be happy to. So CTA has several projects. It's hard to choose one. Um, but I think I'll focus on a project in New York City. It's called the Jahaji Sisters. The Jahaji Sisters is a Indo Caribbean gender Justice organization. It's based in New York, as I said, um, and it's really committed to creating a safe and equitable society for women and girls in their community, in this Indo Caribbean community. So there's this legacy of violence against women in the Indo Caribbean community because of the inherited violence of that these people, of these people um, that was established when In the mid-1800s to the early 1900s, a lot of Indians left India. They were brought to the Caribbean to replace the African slaves there on the plantations. And they were brought as indentured laborers. So as indentured laborers, their their life was, was brutal. It was a brutal system under which to work and live. And it was particularly dangerous for women since The men outnumbered the women, and as a result, men were in competition with each other for women, and this competition often resulted in fits of jealous rage and acts of abuse and violence against women where they were dismembered and hacked um, with machetes, the machetes that are used to cut sugarcane. So there's this legacy of violence against women in this community that continues to today and is a really serious problem um, in the Indo-Caribbean community in New York City where the Jahaji sisters um, work. The organization started in 2007 um, after there were murders of two Indo-Caribbean women. And the founders of the Jahaji sisters, Shivana and Simone, noticed that There was no outcry from their community that the community's traditional leaders didn't stand up to condemn these murders, and so they decided that they had to stand up. And that's really the first principle of transformative action, right? To speak out and to break the silence that surrounds injustices. So what the Jahaji sisters do is they they do several things. Uh, One is to build a peer-led community so they have these circles of support where they bring women together who have experienced abuse um, to talk amongst themselves and to heal and give voice to their lived experiences through storytelling and also through a variety of arts-based um, projects. So they're through these circles or these healing groups, they're seeking to understand not only their own personal stories and to hear each other's stories and then through that also gain strength and empowerment through just that sharing, but they're also learning about this history that I just talked about, the history of their ancestors. And by working in both areas, looking at the larger system, uh, this history and The system of power and power dynamics between men and women, as well as digging deep into their own personal story and their own personal experience, both of those they realize are important to transforming the circumstances in which they're living. So to this end, they're working with the male leaders of their religious communities to help them understand this dynamic and this history and the impact on women in this community so that they can become advocates for transforming the male-dominated hierarchy that is evident, that exists in the traditional religious community and then also is perpetuated through the gendered power imbalance in intimate relationships as well. So, in this way, the Jahaji sisters are really a manifestation of the second principle of listening um, with empathy. They're listening to each other. They're, if you will, listening to the ancestors to understand their history. Um, and they're building bridges across difference by reaching out to the male dominated leadership of their religious temples to. Engage them in a process of listening and understanding so that they can be forces of change and leadership to undo the 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 power dynamic that exists in intimate relationships and then finally, in terms of the third principle, uh, the jahaji sisters are engaged in community organizing political education they're building skills and uh, through popular education and through the arts to bring people together to get inspired and to connect so that they can engage in direct action that will affect change and you know, heal themselves and heal, heal their communities and create, you know, a more loving and just community which um, will will revere women and protect them and support women and girls. So I think in that way, the Jahaji sisters is really a great example of all three principles of transformative action. Yes.
1: Uh, yes, and of course we'll be hearing their story in a later episode of In Between Places. Shifting gears a bit, the word... Abundance comes up a lot in your work. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about having an abundance mentality.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, earlier I, I was talking about how transformative action is really fundamentally about providing an alternative to the us versus them strategy and mentality that we all carry with us. In our society, you know, competition is prized, and, so, and there are good things about competition, but in a economic and social circumstances, this competition can, can look like, I've got to win, and if I win, that means you lose. So I don't want to be on the losing side of that. I don't want to lose, so you can win, right? And it's just this fear-driven a way of looking at the world that sees everything as scarce. That there's not enough, I'm not enough, there's not enough, and if I'm going to survive, I got to make sure that I have enough for myself and my own. And that means then at the expense of others. So fundamentally, we can look at the inequities that we see in society as being the result of systems that are based on the sense of scarcity or this assumption and mental model of scarcity. And so instead, what we'd like to offer is an alternative, which is a mental model and understanding a perspective of the world that comes from a place of abundance. Um, and I wanna reiterate that I'm talking about a perspective, a way of thinking, an abundance mindset. And when we think about the world and our community and our lives as coming from a place of abundance, then there's a few things that shift. For instance, instead of thinking that I may not be good enough and being in this fear of, am I good enough? Can I succeed? Will I win? Am I going to, you know, am I going to fail? Instead, if we're grounded in a place of abundance, then we think of ourselves as Being enough. And just in saying that almost, there's a release that happens in our bodies. We can be enough because we're a contribution. Just by living, we become a contribution to others in our relationships, in who we are, in our thinking, the ideas that we bring, in in the love and compassion that we can share. Like there's no competition around those things. It's enough. And we're not perfect. You know, thinking of yourself as being enough doesn't mean you're perfect. We're always striving to become, you know, maybe more to live into our true capacities and to live out our uh, gifts and our strengths and to learn more so that we can be more creative and understand the world and satisfy our curiosity, right? We're always growing and growing and changing and learning and becoming our better selves. But foundationally, if we understand that we're enough then that gives us this wellspring from which to draw, right, this resource within ourselves internally that allows us to give to others. So the abundance mindset is one where instead of hoarding, you know, because we're scared that maybe, you know, others will get ahead of us so we we got to keep what we have to make sure that we'll survive and that we can win and that we'll, we'll be strong. Um, We can let go of that way of being. And instead from an abundance perspective, contribute to others. And that has that generative impact of then others responding to us positively and us getting, feeling the sense of community and connection and belonging And from that grows the sense of trust and this ability to be vulnerable. And again, that becomes the foundation of communities uh, taking care of each other, taking care of people within their communities and taking care of other communities around them. Because by doing that, we all thrive. So again, it gets to that notion of, We're all better off if we're all better off, so let's take care of each other so that all of us can thrive. And that's where the abundance mindset allows us down that path along that journey of uh, taking care of one another and collaborating and supporting each other because we all benefit when a community does that. I see your face See your face in the crowd Dip the scale
1: Sandresky and this is In Between Places. Today, Anka Wessels, the leader and visionary of the Center for Transformative Action at Cornell University. So I want us to listen to an important essay to Anka that gets at the heart of CTA. It's called Summer's Abundant Community by Parker Palmer. It's about the abundance and richness of summertime and community.
2: Where I live, summer's keynote is Abundance. The forests fill with undergrowth, the trees with fruit, the meadows with wildflowers and grasses, the fields with wheat and corn, the gardens with zucchini, and the yards with weeds. In contrast to the the sensationalism sensationalism of spring, spring. summer Summer is a steady
1: steady state state of plenty,
3: a green and amber muchness that feeds us on more levels than we know. Nature Nature does does not not always always produce produce abundance, abundance, of course. There are summers when flood or drought destroy the crops and threaten the lives and the livelihood of those who work in the fields. But nature normally takes us through a reliable cycle of scarcity and abundance in which times of deprivation foreshadow an eventual return to the abundant fields. This fact of nature is in sharp contrast to a human nature, which seems to regard perpetual scarcity as the law of life. Daily, I am astonished at how readily I believe that something I need is in short supply. If I hoard possessions, it is because I believe that there are not enough to go around. If I struggle with others over power, it is because I believe that power is limited. If I, believe, if I, become, je- if I become jealous in relationships,
1: it is because I believe when we get too much love, I will be shortchanged. Even
2: in writing this essay, essay, I've had to struggle with the scarcity assumption. It's easy to stare at the blank page and despair of ever having another idea, another image, another illustration. It's easy to look back at what one has written and say, that's not very good, but I'd better keep at it because nothing better will come along. It's difficult to trust that the pool of possibilities is bottomless, that that one one can can keep keep diving diving in in
4: and and finding more. The irony, often tragic is that by embracing the scarcity assumption we create the very scarcities we fear if i hoard material goods others will have too little and i will never have enough if i fight my way up the ladder of power others will be defeated and i will never feel secure if i get jealous of someone i love i am likely to drive that person away if i cling to the words i have written as if they were the last of their kind the pool of new possibilities will surely go dry. We create scarcity by fearfully accepting it as law and by competing with others for resources, as if we were stranded on the Sahara at the last oasis. In the human world,
1: abundance world, abundance abundance does not happen automatically. It is created when we all have a sense to choose community and to come together and to celebrate and share our common stores,
3: Whether the scarce resource is money or love or power or words. The true law of life is that we generate more of whatever seems scarce by trusting its supply and passing it around. Authentic abundance does not lie in secured stockpiles of food or cash or influence or affection, but in belonging to a community where we can give those goods to others who need them and receive them from others when we are in need. I
2: sometimes speak on college campuses campuses about the importance of community in academic life, one of the most competitive cultures I know. On one such occasion, following my talk, a man stood in the audience, introduced himself as occupant of the distinguished such-and-such chair of biology, and began what I thought, given his rather pompous self-introduction, would surely be an attack. Instead, he said simply, Of course we must learn to live in community with each other. After all, it is only good biology. Biology, the discipline that was once driven by the anxious metaphors like the survival of the fittest and nature red in tooth and claw, now has a new metaphor, community. Death has not ceased, of course, but now it is understood as a legacy to the community of abundant life.
1: Here is
3: a summertime truth. Abundance is a communal act, the joint creation creation of an incredibly complex ecology in which each part functions on behalf of the whole and in return is sustained by the whole.
4: Community Community not only creates abundance, community is abundance. If we could learn that equation from the world of nature, the human world might be transformed. Summer is the season when all the promissory notes of autumn and winter and spring come due, and each year the debts are repaid with compound interest.
2: In summer, it it is hard to remember that we had ever doubted the natural process, had ever ceded death the last word, had ever lost faith in the powers of new life. Summer is a reminder that our faith is not nearly as strong as the things we profess to have faith in. A reminder that for this single season at least, we might cease our anxious machinations and give ourselves to the abiding and abundant grace of our common life.
1: That was Summer's Abundant Community by Parker Palmer.
0: I think um, the line, in the human world, abundance does not happen automatically. It is created when we have the sense to choose community, to come together to celebrate and share our common store. I think that's one of sort of the fundamental message of, of this essay that it's not automatic, but it is a way of being that allows us to take care of each other and That's what we need as humans. We really need community in order to survive and to thrive. And that authentic abundance isn't about material things. So later he talks about authentic abundance does not lie in secured stockpiles of food or cash or influence or affection, but in belonging to a community where we can give those goods to others who need them and receive them from others when we are in need, that it's really this call for us to let go of this notion of individualism um, as the end-all be-all, that uh, who we are are, is based on our own successes and uh, what we have gained for ourselves, and instead embrace this notion of community and that who we are is really a reflection of the community around us and what we have gained and given to that community.
1: Former CTA Executive Director Phil Snyder said that transformation doesn't find its way in the big and the flashy, but instead in these kind of messy things. Transformation finds its way in daily face-to-face interactions In a myriad of small encounters that enable us step by step to move forward. It's the blessings of smallness, transience, and unpredictability, he says, that make these encounters unrecoverable as events of note, yet their unheroic quality is the backbone of the sustained effort necessary for good work the people who commit to this life of transformative action learn a way of patience and empathy and viewing others as allies. And that can look a lot of different ways. In the upcoming episodes of In Between Places, we'll meet some of the projects through the Center for Transformative Action and we'll be inspired. At the end of this episode, we'll have a sneak peek at one of those projects called the Memory Maker Project. They offer hands-on arts programs for people living with memory loss and their loved ones. They strive to disrupt the stigma surrounding aging and memory loss to create more inclusive, intergenerational communities. If you're curious to find out more about the Center for Transformative Action or you're inspired to be a change agent in your own community, reach out to CTA at centerfortransformativeaction.org. Special thanks for today's episode from Cornell Media Relations, Aaron Carr, Dan Davis, Jim Donahue, and Sarah Menez. Music today by Silva D. Algeria and Derek Clegg. And now, here's that sneak peek at the Memory Maker Project. We're here in the Arnott Art Gallery in Elmira, New York. It has white walls and tall ceilings and is a little echoey. A group of couples sits around three different paintings. We're joining with the Memory Maker Project's Meet Me at the Museum outing. In front of the group are paintings of scenes, young girls swimming, babies, some naked people in front of trees and mountains, and it sparks a lot of conversation.
5: So, what do you guys see when you look at this? Trees? Nudes. Oh, nudes! (laughs) As she whispers it, nudes. (laughs) Nudes? What else do you guys see? What did she say?
0: I just didn't think they were very good looking.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Christina Muscatello is facilitating that conversation. She's a longtime arts educator and the founder of the Memory Maker Project. She says most of us will be impacted by memory loss in some point in our lives, whether for ourselves or in the life of someone we care about. And that's the case for everyone at this event. She says as a project for the Center for Transformative Action, Memory Maker has identified some of the issues facing families dealing with memory loss. For one, these folks tend to be pretty socially isolated. Even though these folks still head to the doctor or the pharmacy, the same cultural activities they used to do don't make sense in the same way. Movie theaters or art galleries often don't cater to the issues people with Alzheimer's or dementia deal with. At the gallery in front of those paintings, Christina prompts individuals with questions. Hey, Barb, what do you think is happening on that mountain? Giselle, what do you think it would feel like to be in that water? And then she comes to Ron who's pretty quiet, so Christina gently coaxes him.
5: Ron, what would you do if you were there? She
1: asks, what would you do if you were in that painting? Would you want to be there in that scene?
0: Well, it is very pretty, but I don't know how to categorize it. Yeah. Would you jump in? Would you jump into the
1: water? <laughs> no. No. Or do you like to keep your feet, you like keep dry. Your feet dry? Yes. <laughs> Do you, like to- do you like to swim, she asks? And that brings a bigger conversation. If I have a scuba tank, yeah.
5: Oh, you just really escalated that from like a casual <laughs> swim <laughs> like to like <laughs> Are you a scuba diver? Ocean water diver. <laughs> yeah. Ocean, oh, wow.
0: Ocean water certified, yeah.
5: What do you find down there?
0: The mermaid. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Find any octopi?
0: No. Mm-hmm. Although we do, we did find some fairly large barracudas. Sharks. I didn't get very close to any sharks. You're remarkably calm about all of this. <laughs>
5: You're just like, yeah, I didn't get too close
4: to them. <laughs> yeah, I was a scuba diver, and I was in the water, and the this shark started coming toward me. And I just sat on the bottom and he went right over my head about that much space there and he never even knew I was there.
1: So these questions are extremely important for people who have Alzheimer's or dementia. The arts are sort of this gateway into accessing old memories and creating new ones with loved ones. It increases the person's confidence and the quality of their life. This kind of chat about paintings, about memories, is exactly the aim of the Memory Maker Project. They offer the language to families and caregivers to help facilitate conversations with their loved ones with memory loss. Christina says a lot of times, family members are really struggling, missing the person they remembered. Well, you You always
5: hear people saying, like, well, you remember this, right? And I totally understand, like, I I don't want to not be gentle about this because it's really hard. Like, as the person on the sidelines, it's scary and it's sad and you're going through this deep loss while you're trying to keep a stiff upper lip and tell yourself, this person is living, we're creating a new chapter. And, like, I firmly believe that. But I also do believe in mourning. And, like, I just don't think that those two things should go together. Like, caretaking and mourning at the exact same time can get a little problematic because you can't be your best care care partner when you're... A lot of times when you're mourning and caring, what ends up happening is that then you're trying to get the person back. And that doesn't really help anyone. And I do say this a lot, that it's really... not them it's us we're the real problem they're not a problem they're living their best life and they are living it as fully as they possibly can and they are offering everything that they can in that moment and trying to push them out of that and bring them back into their old reality is not fair to anybody so what we as people with memory need to be aware of is that You know we're we're here as the external hard drives of memory but we're also here to learn from them how to be in the moment and how to share without memory in some cases how we can how we can share the moment together just for the sake of being and to just enjoy a moment and let's talk about the leaves rustling and what do you like about this what does it make you feel using the senses touch this isn't this so soft like would you, can I rub this flower against your face and oh what does that feel like to you I mean there's so much in this world that's lush and sensuous you know and we have so many resources to connect with somebody if we're always just demanding that we're going back into our old routine or our old relationship where nobody's gonna win